The word of God from Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ, Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God, so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And would you all remain standing for just one more moment and pray with me before we begin? Our Father in heaven, we know that without your word, we live in darkness. And uh, sometimes, if we're honest, we even prefer the darkness to your light. Because we want what we want, even if it leads to our own self-destruction or pain for others. So we just ask that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask that your spirit would help us to embrace the light, even if it exposes the darker sides of us we would rather keep hidden. We trust that the light of the world transforms ugliness into beauty, suffering into healing, foolishness into wisdom, resistance into surrender, sin and death into grace and life. Help us now to be still in the presence of Jesus so that we would be more patient in our hearing, gentle in our speaking, faithful in our believing, and wise in our living. We ask for your help with all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, good morning, everybody. Uh, happy Sunday. If you're new here, uh, welcome to Denver Prez. Welcome to our Sunday gathering. My name is Ty. I'm a pastoral resident here at Denver Prez. And if you're wondering what a pastoral resident is, so am I. Uh, I guess I teach and preach sometimes, and uh, Ronnie likes to remind me that um, uh, cleaning the toilets is definitely in the job description, even though we don't have toilets to, to clean because we don't own the place here. So how that works, I don't really understand, but it's part of the job description. Anyway, you might remember from previous sermons of mine that I like to provide a short Q&A for the sermon, so you can find that in your bulletin if that's helpful for you. Otherwise, 
the first thing I really need to clarify is the title of this sermon, which is uh, Cruciform Communities. Cruciform Communities. Now, I normally try to avoid religious language at all costs, uh, because it can be unfamiliar or even confusing for some of us. Uh, but this time, I just couldn't find a more appropriate word to use than cruciform. Though it might sound um, intimidating at first, cruciform isn't a very scary religious word after all. It's related to the word cross. Okay, so if, if cross is the noun and crucify is the verb, cruciform is the adjective. So cruciform means cross. I could have written cross-shaped or cross-like communities or something like that, but that would have been too many words, so I just used the word cruciform instead. So the other thing I need to clarify is the with him, with him, with him language you heard during our scripture reading. So the theological language our tradition uses to describe this with him language is union with Christ. Now, if you're like me, and you didn't grow up in the church, then this sounds like a really religious idea. You might hear the word union at a wedding or something, but even then, only the pastor says it. I doubt that you would use the word union to describe your marriage. Even if you were talking to other religious people, that would just sound sort of weird. So what does it mean to say Christians have some kind of union with Christ? Well, there's really two parts to that answer. So first of all, it means that even though Jesus is not physically present with us, there's still a sense in which we can have a vital relationship with him. In other words, his bodily absence doesn't mean we've been abandoned by him. Second, it means that we can actually experience this relationship with Jesus in real ways. So not only are we not abandoned by him, but we're actually becoming more like him, reflecting him more and more as we mature and grow in our faith. So our union with Christ is both relational and it's experiential. Okay, this is important for us because it means that Jesus is not a concept. Okay, God is not an idea that you create and then project onto the world as a coping mechanism. Okay, God is personal. And God makes himself available to us through Jesus of Nazareth. And in fact, what we'll find in this text is that God is inviting us into deeper and richer experiences of him by shaping our lives after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because, because death and resurrection set the pattern for faithful living. So let me just state the point of this text very clearly at the beginning, and then as we go on, you'll see, you'll see why this makes sense. But the point of this text is this way, is this. Death to sin leads to true life in God. Okay, let me say that one more time. Death to sin leads to true life in God. Or you could put it this way. Um, escape from sin slavery to live in the life-giving presence of God. And when you put it that way, you get that the Christian life is a kind of exodus story. And it's an exodus not only for individual Christians, but for all of us who belong to the community of faith. So together, 
we need to live as if we've been released from sin to live in the presence of God. That's what this text is about. So let's start walking down our own Exodus journey by reflecting on three kind of um, life-altering relationships that we have because we're united with Christ. Okay, the first is our disconnected relationship to sin. So our text begins with a question in verse 1. Paul asks, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So this is actually a rhetorical question, which means Paul is assuming people will respond to what he's just said by sinning, even though he doesn't actually believe that to be the implication of what he's just said. So uh, why might some people think Paul wants Christians to sin? Well, here's what he said in Romans 5.20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So you get it, right? Sin increases, grace increases. You would have expected him to say the opposite. You would have expected God to reduce, I don't know, suspend, or at least question his commitment to forgiveness the more that sin increases. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Whereas you and I can treat sin and grace as opposites, God doesn't. The more you sin, the more God's grace opens and widens to cover your sin. That's why it seems like Paul is giving us divine permission to sin. And so that's when Paul reflects on our union with Christ and decides, like, no. Like, God's ever-expanding forgiveness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. And his main reason is that our union with Jesus in his death disconnects us from the power of sin. So listen to verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So for Paul, uh, baptism is a, is a symbol that we share a common identity with Jesus. It's as if the things that happened to Jesus on the cross also somehow happened, happened to us. So baptism simultaneously symbolizes Jesus' death as well as, as well as our own death. But death is normally associated with lifelessness. So how can our death be something that's positive, something that actually symbolizes newness of life? In verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So there it is. Our old self, our old way of life, which was chained to and complicit in the death-dealing injustices all around us, it was crucified, which means we're no longer slaves to our own self-destruction, ruining our own lives as well as everybody else's life, everybody else's life in the process. So if you've ever uh, known somebody who's struggled with addiction, you know this is the kind of death that they would want. Maybe they wouldn't use those words, but they know they need to be released from their dependencies because it only brings them more regret and more pain. 
So breaking an addiction would be a good kind of death. It's a kind of death that leads to healing and to freedom. And that, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about one of the most beautiful things about Christianity. Because Christianity doesn't teach us to stoically limit our desires so that we live more self-controlled lives. You know, it doesn't teach us to, to transcend our desires so we don't get hurt by disappointment and by loss. And it doesn't teach us to embrace every desire so we can live our best life now. Christianity points us to the death of Jesus on the cross as the source of a new kind of freedom because his death is your life. His sacrifice of love on the cross sets you free from yourself and all of your life-taking desires. His wounds heal your desperate need to consume, control, and impress. So Jesus finds you in your ugliest moment, washes away your past with all of its guilt and shame, and then he gives you a new name, son, daughter of the resurrected king. And that naming ceremony resets your desires. Because whose you are shapes who you are, and you now belong to the family of God. That's what it means to be disconnected from the power of sin. It's not about finding a life hack from a respected religious leader. It's about being found by a Savior who accepts you as his own and then sets you free to live as a royal child of God. That's the first life-altering relationship we have because of our union with Christ. We're disconnected from the power of sin. The second life-altering relationship is a divine reconnect. So in verse 8, Paul says, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Then in verse 10, he says, The death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So our union with Jesus in, in his death stops sin from seducing us and exploiting us to carry out its will. And then at the same time, our union with Jesus in his resurrection revitalizes our connection with God. I think it's important to uh, slow down here and reflect on these words because I think they kind of gently push back on some of our assumptions about God and the afterlife. So I think it's, I think it's safe to say that we normally associate divine life with heaven. You know, and Ronnie has already really helpfully broken down the disembodied angels playing harps in the clouds version of heaven many of us might be familiar with. But there's another aspect um, this text helps us to reconsider. So um, everything that's said here is actually in the present tense, which means the resurrection of Jesus imparts God's life to us now. Not some vague and distant time in the future, but now. The question, though, the question is how. Like, in what ways are we actually alive to God now? So I want to bring in um, two other letters that help us understand, understand how it is that we're alive to God now in the current, our current moment. 
So Ephesians and Colossians use very similar language about being dead in sin and then being alive in God. So you can hear the similarities in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. It says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, there it is, even when we were dead in transgressions. Okay. So Paul then summarizes what that death in sin means in verse 12 when he says, You had no hope and were without God in the world. So what characterized the death we experienced because of sin was hopelessness, right? meaninglessness, aimlessly wandering around in a cloud of fear because sin creates all of these disorienting near-death experiences that we repeatedly fall into. That's what sin is. It's a near-death experience. So the opposite of that then would describe life in God. Not hopelessness, but hope, right? Meaning, fulfillment and flourishing because God has given you purpose and direction. So there's another detail in Colossians that makes this hope a little more practical. So Paul says this in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. You can hear the similarities. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So a person who's alive to God is filled with hope because their heart and mind is set on things above where they are hidden in God's presence. So a first century person knew what it meant not to be hidden, but to be exposed and judged by their society, to be labeled unwanted by the standards of their shame honor culture, to frankly be treated like property, not a person. Which is why everybody's goal in life in the first century was to achieve a higher position in society so you could avoid the negative social stigmas that come with your gender or being poor or being the children of ungodly or unsuccessful parents. So everybody, everybody felt exposed, not hidden, certainly not hidden. And we also know what it's like to be seen and judged by everybody around us. At one time or another, we've all been the unwilling target of somebody else's insults. And it can be so hard to avoid the criticism of complete strangers in the modern world because of our social media. Sometimes, especially the judginess, the judginess of other Christians. So while we're all caught up with like perception management and maintaining a good image so we can get the approval of others, Paul says that we are hidden with Christ in God, which means, which means you're safe. You're safe. You don't have to compete with everybody anymore. You don't have to worry about missing out. You don't have to fear not being enough. You don't have to make your life about being noticed by the right people because you already have God's attention. So in Christ, your life, your true identity is hidden. He doesn't want to expose you as a fake, 
right? He's not going to cancel you. He won't label you and judge you by what you haven't accomplished. He refuses to hold your failures against you. So being alive to God means being known and named and loved by him. Because in Christ, you're enough. Like, you're enough. That's why Paul wants you to set your hearts and minds on things that are above. Because it reclaims meaning and purpose in a world that sometimes feels like, for many of us anyway, that God left this place a long time ago. But when you rest in the constant approval of Jesus, you're showing others that they can still hope for an identity that is hidden in God. So there's, there's one more piece to this puzzle. After you've been disconnected from the power of sin, and after you've been reconnected to God, Paul then lays out the vision of a community that has experienced the liberating and renewing presence of Jesus. And that's, that's what our communal redirect is. So there's something really interesting in verse 12 that I want you to see. Notice that sin is described like a king. Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Reigning is something that royalty does. So Paul's treating sin as if it's a malicious diplomat for, from a foreign kingdom. And this malicious diplomat has, has a mission to deceive us into thinking that we should lead a rebellion against the kingdom of God. I also want you to notice a contrast Paul uses in verse 13. He says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. This is a contrast between being used as an instrument of wickedness and an instrument of, of righteousness. So here, here's the point of these two observations. Um, for Paul, there are two kind of competing or opposing forces at work in our world. There's the dark power of the kingdom of sin that is trying to recruit us to obey its life-taking passions. And then there's, there's a life-giving power of the kingdom of God that leads us to do justice. And both of these powers exist at the same time, just behind the veil of our everyday lives. And it doesn't take a religious person to sense these competing influences, right? We know that there's this like alienating spirit about us that wants to demean and intimidate others, that wants to label entire groups of people as unwanted or even the enemy, and that wants to draw the metaphorical line in the sand closer and closer around themselves. So there are very clear us versus them boundaries. But it also doesn't take a religious person to know that there is a deep and a persistent impulse to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And it's that kind of influence that allows a process of reconciliation and healing to happen between people who've hurt each other. And so as followers of Jesus, we will always feel the constant tug of war to be an instrument of wickedness on the one hand and an instrument of righteousness on the other. 
And that's because we just live in this really uncomfortable space between injustice and the shalom God wants for us as a community of Jesus. But what followers of Jesus have always done to kind of overcome this tension is hope, pray, and do. Paul's words here are, present yourselves as instruments of righteousness or justice to God. And the verb here, present, is actually plural. So there's a kind of collective summons here to embody Jesus's cruciform way of life, which means that we should pray against and resist the death-dealing injustices all around us. But it also means we should pray for and build an alternative community that is centered around Jesus's counterintuitive way of life, right? Where weakness is actually better than strength, where forgiveness undoes revenge and retaliation, and we're covering each other's sins in love, uh, soothes our wounds and restores our really strained relationships. So I think the call here is actually to redirect our communities to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, because that's where the blueprints of Jesus's cruciform mission is. And, and if we can do that, you know, if we can just take Jesus's teachings from the Sermon on the Mount seriously and dedicate our lives to it, then I think you and I can actually answer Jesus's prayer. When Jesus said, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was praying for God's space and our space to overlap more and more. And of course, like of course, Jesus is the first and primary bridge between God and humanity. Like I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not denying that. But I think he taught his disciples that prayer because he wanted them to become the kind of people who would not only pray for the kingdom, but to embody its values just like he did. And the key, I think, to narrow the gap between God's space and our space is to pray the Lord's Prayer and then discern how we should become instruments of justice wherever God has placed us. So I know what I've said might seem just like desperately impractical, right? Like I know I, know I didn't ask you to evaluate your commitment to Jesus or list any steps to seek justice for the kingdom. But here's the thing, here's the thing. After the sermon ends, that's when the challenge of making all of our theology become more like biography really begins. And that's something that we have to do together because we're all helping each other embrace the way of Jesus. And I don't know if this might just be a me thing. I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's just me. But often what Jesus wants from me and what I want from me like, it doesn't always match, right? So I need you to help me stay committed to Jesus. We need each other to follow Jesus. Even when it's hard and nobody in Denver really cares if you're trying to follow Jesus with integrity or not. So what I want to do to kind of um, shape and inspire our uh, theological imaginations and remind us of how beautiful and compelling Jesus really is is read a piece of spoken word poetry. 
And uh, this is not my spoken words. This is something I found online. So if you find it interesting, that's it's not me. It's the person who wrote it, right? And so my prayer is that these words would ignite uh, a renewed commitment to hoping, praying, and doing so that we would become a cruciform community that reflects Jesus in everything that we say and do. So Denver Prez, may thy kingdom come, may thy will be done. It can be done, it will be done, the work's already begun on earth as it is in heaven. And you and me, our hearts, our exchange, our lives have been rearranged. Our passions have begun to change because he has beseeched us, unleashed us, bequeathed us the keys to his kingdom, the work that must be done here and now. We can plant and plow. He will show us how. So don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't let it percolate or let time confiscate the power that we have in this day and hour. My brothers and sisters, we cannot resist this. It is our existence to become his assistance, to make exchange, to enact change, and to rearrange all, all for his name. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the words of Paul that teach us that we are disconnected from the power of sin, that we are reconnected to the very source of life itself in Jesus. And we pray that you would help our community here at Denver Press to be redirected back towards you and the things that you love. So help us to deny ourselves so that we would not become instruments of wickedness, but instead help us to always become instruments of justice so that we would represent you to our neighbors when our neighbors feel like this whole God thing is just some idea or some crutch that doesn't really matter. Help us to persuade them with our lives that you are real, that you are present among us, and that you are making all things new. So we ask for your help in all this because we are weak and we can't do it on your own. And we need you to inspire us and to help us to do this all for your name's sake. So we ask for your help and blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.